Welcome to the Voodoo Power Podcast. Welcome to Plates and Pancakes. We're sitting down today with Chris Corfus. Coach Corfus is a track and football coach. He has coached high school sports for over 30 years. He has spent his career helping kids become their best with more than 80 All-State athletes. He has spent his life studying strength and conditioning, exploring the ins and outs of speed, and making that translate to the field. He is a co-owner of the Track Football Consortium and co-founder of Reflexive Performance Reset. He has his own facility, Slow Guy Speed School, where his clientele range from middle school to world champions. Through his work, he has consulted with professional sports teams from the NFL, MLB, NBA, and Rugby League. Welcome to the show, Coach. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, being on. It's always uh, nice to chat with people about what's going on and what's changing, what's staying the same and all that. So I got on the TFC website and was kind of reading some of your articles and kind of ran across your condensed autobiography. Uh, that was that was a really interesting read. That's what I did during COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I, I had the idea I was going to clean out my, my basement, which is my gym, and I have all these bookshelves with all this stuff. And I thought, you know, I had the garbage can. I started pitching stuff. And you go, well, you know what? What did I get from each one of these things that I'm throwing out? And what did I get from the things that I'm keeping up on the bookshelf? I just started writing it down because, you know, during that first lockdown, we all had nothing but time. Uh, so it was just kind of fun to go through and, you know, look to see what I learned from every book and every person that I ran into and every piece of paper that was sitting up in some binder or some shelf or, you know, five by eight note card where I had a bunch of notes from some person that I learned from 20 years ago. Well, it was really cool to see your progression of where you kind of come from to where you've ended up. And I would say that maybe our paths at least are kind of similar. Now you've, you've managed to move way on. I'm, I'm very in the infancy stage, I guess you would say, but <laughs> from Northern Illinois, your coach was uh Zelensky. Yeah. Jim Zelensky. And he was a Husker power guy. He's a Husker power guy. And I'm a Nebraska corn Husker fan. I've read Boyd Epley stuff. You know, that's kind of where I started. Moved from there to West side. I know you worked with Louis Simmons. I went out there twice. Yeah. I went out to uh, West side twice. And you went to the facility when it was on Dimmerst. Yeah. When it was the old, I think it was a pizza place or a seven 11 or something that got converted over to the blacked out windows and the sleds out in the strip mall parking lot. So I would imagine that was a unique experience just from what I hear the stories of. Especially, yeah. especially being a high school track coach walking into a place like that. I think at that time I was, uh, I was still a football coach and I was in charge of the strength program at my high school. So I was kind of wearing a lot of different hats and Louis Simmons was always more than generous with all of his time and all of his information and, you know, said I can come out if I want. And, you know, if he, he treats you like a, he treated you like a king when you showed up. He gave you everything that you wanted, answered all your questions, gave you all this time. Uh, while all that stuff was going on, you know, people lifting a lot of weight and that was a phenomenal experience both times. And then from there, you moved into some, uh, DB Hammer stuff, which is really interesting. Yeah. We, uh, that was a Dan Fichter thing where, this is back in the message board days. <laughs> That's how everyone communicated and shared ideas. And he started posting stuff up. I think it was on a super training forum. And, 
we just kind of hooked into him. Um, of course, his book was phenomenal and we started emailing back and forth, uh, and had a treasure trove of stuff from DB Hammer. Uh, whether it was helping you with designing workouts for your athletes where you'd look at film or just general questions about training. And, you know, this is what I thought. What do you think of this? And it would, he would give his viewpoint of how he saw things. And it, it was just a great way to open up your mind that there's more to it than how much can you lift? You know, it, it really kind of got you into whether it's sports specific or individual specific, how you can really get the most out of that one individual for that one sport. Um, I think that's, it's a really general way of looking at what you do with DB hammer stuff. You know, whether you're typing out, you know, are you a rate dominant or a strength dominant or a power dominant person or, you know, how you design workouts and how do you know how many sets and reps to do or how to rotate exercises and, and really how to challenge the brain. Cause I think that's ultimately what we wanted to do as coaches is challenge the brain. I think as athletes, uh, as animals, we are problem-solving creatures. And I think when you stick someone in the weight room time and time and time again, there's no problems being solved there. It's just you're going to press weights where what we want to do is solve a problem. Uh, that's why you have to add you know, variety and complications to the training world. Okay, so that's kind of where I was wanting to go. I wanted to build on that a little bit. Do you think that maybe through your studies that we have the strength paradigm backwards where we put so much focus on the one rep max and maybe the submaximal weights for speed carry over better out in the field, out on the track, out on the football field. Uh, again, it's going to depend on the individual. Um, if you've got someone who's not very strong, uh, maybe you need to look at the one rep max to, just to learn how to recruit. And I think with today's athlete, and I'm saying the post-COVID athlete, their nervous systems have been sitting in a room for 18 months. And, you know, we really need to learn how to to get them to contract hard, which is a max strength thing. But at the same time, can you contract fast? I I think what we've been left with after all this is the idea that, we have some really undertrained athletes. And I think initially you can get away with just about anything and get some improvement. Um, but it's really after that first wave of improvement is really where the art of coaching comes in. And you've got to really look at what you've got objectively, not based on what you want. Like I want five, 500 pound squatters on my team and maybe that'll help, but objectively look at what you've got and try to solve that problem. And each individual is a problem to solve. Yeah, they're all going to have their strengths and their weaknesses, and then you have to decide what category they fit in and how to improve them. Yes. And I, I think when people come out and watch me coach, uh, it's frustrating for them because I don't say much. I hand kids a card, I explain them their exercises, and then they go off and do their thing. And really, like we're at the point right now, we have nine practices left before the state meet. I said, you guys have nine opportunities to get better. If you want to go whole all out on this, you know, that's what's going to get you to what your goal is. But if you want to half-ass it, you know, you're not going to meet your goal. This is your opportunity to take ownership of, of this workout. Uh, and we all cycle through. Like today, it was 45 degrees here. And so it's not a great day to do 
max velocity work. So we pulled on the 1080 and, you know, you can watch kids come through on the 1080. Um, you put them into some groups. So they, they meet with their teammates here and there and share exercises. Uh, but it's really about, can I identify the 25 kids that I have to get better and give them a time frame so they have a target and give them a sense of urgency by saying, we got nine practices left and give it up to them. I'll let them do it. Now talking about that T, uh, the 1080, I've watched you work with that a little bit, uh, on some of your videos. Now that is an incredible machine. So you can, you can essentially run resisted or you can do almost like a lightning method where it'll pull them through. So they're actually going over speed. Yes. You can set it up where it's pulled them diagonal. So with that, all you, the machine does so much. But neurologically, that's where you're getting your biggest advantage. Yes, Um, especially overspeed. Because, again, it's a problem to solve. This machine is pulling me at 11, 12, 14 meters a second. How do I not fall? Uh, And I have, I think I have the only one, but I have a release. So I get you going fast, and then I release you from the machine. So now how much of that speed can you carry over? Um, which is what I want. I, I want them to feel what it's like to go really fast. I want their body to know that it's safe to go that fast. Because I think a lot of times people shut down when they think they have a certain threshold and you show them that it's okay to go that fast. It's no different than taking a kid and uh he's got like a 30-inch vertical jump. You put him on a 40-inch box. Their, their immediate reaction when they stand at the top of the box is they squat down a little bit because neurologically they're making the ground come closer to their face and it becomes more of an acceptable feat or a task because they know they're not going to fall the full 40 inches. Same thing when you sprint or think about when you ski. If you ski downhill, you're going too fast, you'll instantly know and people either put on the brakes or they'll they'll fall. Uh, that's what I like about overspeed is the fact that I'm I'm going to break down those deep neurological barriers that say I can't go fast and you do go fast. So that that was a question I had. Now the 1080 that's that's a pretty expensive piece of equipment. It is. But if you was at a small school, let's say somebody that didn't a school that didn't have the funds for that, I started thinking about this. We, you can run kids downhill, but the first thing that I notice is when you run kids downhill. When they hit level, they want to start shutting it down. They do. They don't want to let that speed carry through where maybe if you set them up where they could go downhill and then try to get them to carry that speed through the flat, would you get a similar response? I mean, maybe not the same, but similar. I would daisy chain a bunch of rubber bands together and pull them. That's a better thing to do because your body knows you're going downhill. I mean, in a neurological hierarchy, finding a a horizon is early on and your body knows going downhill that the horizon is different. So you're going to automatically inhibit certain movement patterns. But if you just give someone a tug just for a couple strides, uh, that's all you really need. Um, in overspeed can be a lot of different things. You can raise the ground. So running on really thin mats, like a half inch, that's overspeed because the ground's meeting you faster than you expect. Um, doing some kind of drills with a rubber band onto a real, a, a really small mat. Again, it's happening faster than you expect. So you're going to create a, 
an early co-contraction, which means when you learn to do that, you're going to just have a stiffer ankle or a stiffer limb when you hit the ground. And that's, again, I, uh, the research that I did with Ken Clark, and again, I just set this stuff up. Ken did all the work. Uh, that's what we saw in that research that we wrote four or five years ago. Now, taking this a little bit further, the lightened method pulling kids through, pulling athletes through a movement carries over so much more than just track. I've noticed I have a daughter that uh, she's a pitcher. I have another daughter that played volleyball for a while, and I work with some hitters. And I noticed that if you put a band on them, everybody wants to set it up where they're going against the band all the time. But if you can get around in front of them, hook the band to them, and pull them through the movement, it seems to really speed everything up for them. It does. Um, again, we're so used to putting force into something to go through a movement, and you reverse that. It completely flips the neurologic switch, and it opens up those pathways that you can bring that arm further or faster through. This was stuff I'd stumbled on or saw years ago. And then when I saw your stuff and then how you had brought it over to sprinting, it opened up a whole new world of ideas, I guess, to help athletes get faster. And the, the faster you go, you have to be more neurologically aware or you'll fall. Is that the premise? Yeah. Um, you know, again, there's hierarchies of things that you have to do, but you know, early on after you have your, your horizon, you know, you have peripheral vision. Uh, that if you can't pick things up quickly in a periphery, in your periphery, it's going to slow you down. But now you know that you can. Uh, so you, it, it kind of eliminates all those neurologic hierarchies that can shut you down a little bit because your body knows when it is going too fast and it's the brain's primary function is not performance, but safety. And so we want to let the brain know that all this is, is good to go. You know, I think a great example, and Cal and I talk about this all the time. This is during COVID. Uh, Cal, Cal Dietz is a friend of mine and business partner and all that stuff. Um, he came out. This is just to show you Cal's mindset. This is when uh, the state of Wisconsin said that you aren't allowed to travel anymore. And I'm, so I'm talking March. I mean, it just happened. And Cal said, you know, I'm coming down. I said, aren't you getting in trouble? He goes, well, then he can stop me. So he comes down. And I have two dogs, two big dogs, two big bulls, phenomenal athletes, 160, 130 pounds. Um, and they can run like the wind. So we went out in the forest reserve and let the dogs off the leash. Again, that's illegal in Illinois, but if there's nobody out there, nobody's going to catch you. And we're watching them charge through the forest. I forgot what they were chasing, a coyote or something. Um, and it's amazing that at full speed, and I'm going to guess they're running 30 miles an hour, uh, they have their target, they're watching their target, but they never trip on all the branches and all the other stuff that's underneath their feet, what's coming at them, that they just, their periphery is so phenomenal and so well-trained that they have no fear of tripping on anything. And we already started talking about, you know, maybe that is a factor that comes in this fear that you're going to fall or fear that there's going to be something there. And when you learn that there's no fear, you know, isn't that the story of life? Once you eliminate the fear, all of a sudden life gets so much better. And what world do we live in right now? We're, we're filled with fear. I mean, it's, you're bombarded with fear all the time. Uh, whether it's individual, like I may not run the time and track, or I may not be able to do this to, you know, these bigger things that we get bombarded in the media with. But that's kind of how we, we, we started talking about that was, you know, maybe this peripheral vision stuff, there's something to it. 
um, which is why Cal started doing his infinity drills or his goat drills and putting stuff all over the floor. He literally takes a garbage can and throws the garbage on the floor. And now you've got to run through this maze of stuff over speed and navigate the garbage, which is, oh, by, by the way, you're following, you're tracking someone. So you have to use your periphery to pick up what you can step on and what you can't step on. So I don't know, this might be totally off the wall, but if you narrowed in their focus with blinders to the side and you had to sprint with blinders on a few times and then you took those off, would that open you up any to be able to have better peripheral vision after narrowing it way in? Possibly. That's a possibility. Again, it's going to be individual based. Um, again, this is way off topic, but I do have, I illegally obtained, uh, <laughs> these lenses that you, you can change where things are. You change the depth of things. Um, they're drunk goggles, but you can change the, the, the width of them all. So I can get you to change your foot placement when you sprint. Um, and again, they become like blinders where, you know, what's your body going to do when I completely mess up your vision? And I did all that work with my son. Um, we got paid $20 per workout to, uh, put on crazy things and put on blinders and run blindfolded and things like that. I actually see what happens because if he got hurt, you know, I'm not going to get sued, you know, so it's okay to wreck him. But it, it was interesting to see the change that took place. And what was really cool is he's a, he's a drone guy. He's actually in college to designing drones. That's his, his uh, major. And we took a drone and we flew it overhead so you could see the body adjustments based on what we did to your vision compared to here's how you normally run to a target. And then we messed with his vision and then had the drone fly over top and you could see arms change and, and legs change. So really the body became a rudder to what you thought the target was, even though I distorted the target with the lenses. So I guess building on that a little bit, what if, let's say you had a sprinter that had glasses, natural, you know, he had poor eyesight, he had to wear glasses. If you could convince him to move into contacts, you should, by theory, get a better neurological. Absolutely. So think about this. Go back to elementary school. How many, remember the kid with the pop bottle glasses? How many races did he win? Yeah. As opposed to somebody that had incredible eyesight and could adjust way quicker way quicker and i think you know dan fichter does a lot of stuff with vision you know and, and that's kind of the basis of what he does his argument and i agree is you know your eyes are really a second brain um they're what's going to adjust and so when you do running drills and you try to correct things a lot of times you know your vision is guiding your rudders to get you to where you want to be and again, when I blindfolded my son, we completely changed his running form because he had no target and he didn't know where he was going. And it, it was a more of a natural running form because there was no target, nothing for him to adjust to and, and all that. Um, so getting back to running with that, you know, that's kind of why I got rid of whether it's arm drills or various drills, because really your body is adjusting to what you think the target is and trying to get you there in the best case that it knows how going back through some of the stuff that you've wrote or talked about. I mean, you'll take this to pretty, 
pretty cool extremes, like one shoe, two different shoes. Yeah, we've done that. And, and do you see quite a bit of change in just the way you affect the way their feet are hitting the ground? Oh, yeah. Um, and again, they're not big mats. They're quarter inch, half inch. Uh, Sornix makes flops. Uh, it's really their garbage. It's brilliant because they're selling you their leftover flooring that they don't want to throw out and suckers like me buy it up because I need things that are half an inch or an inch thick to do all this kind of work on. Now, building on the neurological, I guess a little bit more, one spot as I'm getting older that I see it really comes into play is plyometrics. You know, at, at 43 years old, when you jump up there and the body adjustments that you have to make seem to be incredible. So do you also do vision impairment with plyometrics? Uh, I'm kind of an outlier on plyometrics. I don't do any plyometric training. In my 30 plus years, I've never seen any bang for the buck. I've never seen, you know, kids who do it really well, sprint really well. There's been too many variations. Um, you know, even bounding. I've had some really good bounders, but they can't sprint to save their life. And some of the fastest people I've had can't bound to save their life. Um, so for me, plyometrics, the ultimate plyometric is sprinting. And that is my plyometric training is sprinting. That would be one of the top plyometric drills you could do. So I've also seen you use that flywheel machine. Now, if you was to use that at lighter weight and really get the moving through that, you would kind of, could you possibly build a little bit of plyometric effect with that? Um, no, because you can't leave the platform on the, your foot can't come off the ground on a flywheel because the flywheel comes after you because you're connected. I tried it. It didn't go well. Uh, that sucker comes after you like a bat out of hell. Uh, so no, you can't take your foot off. And going back to DV Hammer, that was a differentiation between his two types of acceleration. One was you always stay connected to something. And the other one is you come off of something. So whether you're coming off the ground or throwing a barbell and then you've got to catch it again, those were the two variations of reactive exercises that he believed in. I guess to go into DV Hammer a little bit more, what he really brought to light was time. Your time is always either for you or against you. So in the four, three to four system of a body, depends how you look at it. You got anaerobic one, anaerobic two, aerobic, and then endurance. All of those have times associated with them on what you want to do. Yes. Uh, and that's, I still train by time today. Uh, if you, even Cal Dietz, not even Cal Dietz, but if you look at Cal's workouts with his teams, uh, they don't have reps. Everything is time. Uh, because, well, like DB Hammer explains, you know, there's these energy levels that you have to stay in. And you want to keep in that because three sets of 10 on one exercise is going to be completely different than three sets of 10 on another exercise. And so you have to differentiate what energy systems you're really training. And that's something I've really done this year in track is I've really expanded that. Um, most of our drills are now for duration. Um, most of my frustration that, you know, people fall apart at the end of a race and you, well, why do they fall apart at the end of the race? Well, they're out of shape. Well, they're not out of shape. These kids are in phenomenal shape. Uh, so what's reason number two? Well, it could be that they're, 
they're coming apart at different body parts uh, because they just don't have the strength endurance to control their rib cage or control their pelvis for 22 seconds or 48 seconds. And so we really focused all of our running drills into those time frames of, you know, we're either doing our, our drills for 30 seconds or 50 seconds. Uh, and really focusing on toward the end of that, we really increase the intensity. And for me, it's really sprinting has come down to how well you control your rib cage and how well you control your pelvis. Um, and that's, that's what we've really focused on this year and how fast you can swing your leg. That's, that's what it comes down to. I was talking to some sprinters, Lyrell track guys last night, not necessarily sprinters. And this conversation kind of came up as far as time goes. So let me throw a scenario out there and let's see sure. how, how you think about it. So if you got a couple kids and you wanted to run the 400, they're a little bit slow. You're wanting to improve them. So you're doing everything you can to improve them. But let's say they're running a 56 to 58, 400, which would be, which would be pretty slow. Would you look at, Hey, after 46 seconds, 43 seconds, I know I'm dropping into my aerobic tank. So would you look at working them at a sprint that was closer to that 46 seconds, whether that be a 300 or a 350 until you've built their phosphorus system up a little bit to handle the extra seconds you were going to push them over the time? That may be one day for me, um, but I would spend more time on how efficient the system is. So the more efficient the system is, the less energy it requires to actually move the system. So I would look at feet. Where are my feet pushing and how do I counteract if my feet are pushing the wrong place? What happens when my pelvis drops? What happens when my rib cage drops? Uh, and that's, that's what we, we have done this year. Um, with my track team, and I'm knocking on wood, and I'm not being braggarts, but right now, uh, we are by far the fastest team in the state of Illinois right now. And we're weeks away from the state meet, uh, but times that we have run so far would have won, well, it's one of the fastest times. We've run some of the fastest times. And we have done three speed endurance days all year. And we have spent all of our time working on efficiency and body control. And even the kids say, I can't believe how much better shape we're in this year, coach. And I said, no, it's just we're that much more efficient because we haven't done outdoors. We've done two 150 workouts. We did three 150s and indoors. We only did one 23 second run this year. And you're seeing that kind of improvement just on optimal training with the most efficient way to run possible. That's right. So how, how much can I push my body weight forward? That's that's the question that I ask my kids is what's the best way we can make your mass go forward? So if you have a foot that's pushing a funny way, uh, you create all these imbalances. If you lose a rib cage somewhere along the way, you drop a pelvis, you're all of a sudden putting on the brakes. And it takes a lot of energy to press the brakes and press the gas and press the brakes and press the gas. Why can't we just be on the gas the whole time? Then I don't have to use any energy to to accelerate again. Now, do you find in the overspeed work that the corrections come on their own? Yeah, you can't you can't make mistakes in overspeed or you fall. Um, and I've got film to prove it. I would imagine you could fall pretty quick if you if you wasn't able to get your feet underneath you in the correct pattern. Uh, kids will put on the brakes. Uh, they'll put on brakes before they fall. Uh, they lean back. 
Uh, so they, the body knows how to stop it. Now I've got all kinds of fail safe methods. There's a button that you push that kills the machine. I've got a release that pops it off at any time. I've never had to use those things to save a kid because their body knows and you see them lean back uh, and their heels hit. They know how to put on the brakes without even thinking about it, even though consciously they're thinking how I got to go faster. I got to go faster Two, Oh my God. Deep down, they're going, no, we're not doing this. Put on the brakes. So it probably takes just a little bit of time to get them comfortable with what you're doing. So the first 1080 workouts, not going to be near as good as, no. A couple weeks into it. Uh, and that's why I use the release. Um, we put timers after the release. So I want to see how fast you can run when the thing lets you go. I want to see how well you can conserve that speed that someone else gave you. And that's, and that's what we do with it. Um, that way they don't put on the brakes and that way they try to keep that speed after it lets go. And that, that's worked really well. Um, we had one kid. Again, he's, he could be a freak. Uh, he's the best athlete I've ever coached. On a good day, he's the fastest kid, most powerful kid I've ever seen in my life. Uh, when he is on this year, and it was a warm day. I'm going to say that too. It was 75 degrees outside. Uh, he, he hit on a laser timer, not free lap, a real laser timer. Uh, he ran a 0.83 fly time. But he got pulled and it let go. And then he held that speed through that 10 meter go. So I told him, now you know what it feels like to be Usain Bolt. That's how fast he could run a fly 10. That, that's got to be something. I'm sure the excitement of the kid to know that he was able to push it or at least maintain it that fast. That's got to be a pretty rewarding experience. So to show you how, how hard that is neurologically. Again, the kids run, he's run 10-8 so far this year. I think he could run a 10-4 if he finishes a race. Uh, he always showboats at the end of the race and, you know, never runs the time because he's like saving it for, I don't know what. Uh, but he ran that. It let go. He kept the speed, slowed down. So he's down by the end zone and he had to lay down. It f- completely fried him neurologically. And that was it. That was the end of the workout. That was his third run. Um, he hit that. He said, Coach, I got nothing left. I said, all right, then we're done. In fact, I don't want to see you back for another five days. You don't have to come back till Friday. That's what I was getting ready to ask, how many hours you let off. I know through the DB Hammer stuff and even back to some of the Louis stuff, it was a, it was kind of that 72-hour mark. So five days, you're giving him a lot of rest. A lot of rest. Um, when people run stuff like that, they need a lot of rest to recover that for their body to figure out just what happened. Uh, and again, that's another thing I've done this year. And again, we're not done yet. It may go bad. It might go south. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, that's the joy of sports. Uh, but we really cut back on the number of workouts we did. Uh, some, there were weeks where we just did one workout a week. But if you're getting that growth in one workout a week, you, why well, I do more? Yeah, all you're going to do is burn out some kids that could be, yeah. you know, could be doing something else or whatever. You want them to be refreshed and happy to be there, not dragging their bag behind them walking through the door. Yeah, uh, and again, you have a an athletic director that might question why you're only working out one day a week, and you know all those things. I don't have those problems. I have a great AD. I have a phenomenal head coach, um, and he believes whatever they 
whatever I say, because the goal, what is our goal? Is our goal to be a babysitter and a club where we come every day and we have quality time together or are we here to win stuff? With what you're saying there and the time you give off the kids, do you have them on a rotation? So let's say you have your sprinters one day, your middle distance another day, your long distance another day. With with that kind of setup, it would, I guess, allow you to work in smaller groups on more track of oh, specific. I have, I just have sprinters. Uh, we have a jumps coach, a middle distance coach, a hurdle coach. Um, so they might come back two days later and we might do, well, one day we play dodgeball. Um, another day we, you know, we might play a game. We, we might do a bunch of core work. Um, there's other things that we can work on that doesn't require hitting the ground at really fast speeds. Um, and that's kind of what we fill in. And again, a lot of times everyone has their own stuff. You know, I film workouts and then I do video assessments and I narrate them so kids can watch and we're all on the same page about what we're working toward. And here's the exercises that I think will help. And if they don't work, you know, we need to change up. You need to tell me that, Hey coach, I don't like this. Okay. Well, let's do something else. Um, so that, that it varies. It varies. Um, I'm a horrible coach for writing down what we're going to do. Uh, I don't know what I've done in the past and I don't know what I'm going to do the next workout. Um, because it's all going to depend on what I see that day or what I see at a meet or, you know, I think we need three workouts to do this to get to the point where we need to be to, to deal with this problem. So it's kind of like going to a fair where there's 50 different things going on. And I just trust my kids that they want to win and be the best that they can be. And it's on them. It's on them. Now I'd listened to a podcast you'd done a while back and you were talking about your AD just, uh, just a minute ago. How much of the things out there do people do just to appease, I guess, the eye test? The stretching, the warm-ups, all this junk that gets thrown in there that really is just to make somebody happy that you did it. It it doesn't show much benefit. My opinion, uh, quite a bit. But you keep doing it over and over again, you start to believe. You know, that becomes your tradition or your what you're comfortable with. Uh even my pre-meet workouts, everyone does their own thing. I got two kids that just want to dance. I said, well, then go dance. If that warms you up, go dance. You know, put on your headphones and go do your thing. Or we'll all do it together. I don't know. Maybe I'll come dance with you. You know, it, it, it's all going to be, it's very fluid. Um, but I think a lot of people get stuck in their tradition uh, because that's what they're comfortable with or that's what's expected of them or that's what someone over them sees that you need. Like I remember in the days when dynamic warmups were frowned upon. What are you doing all this stuff for? Why aren't we doing static stretching? Well, now today it's why aren't you doing a dynamic warmup? Well, it's I don't know if it does anything. You know, do I want to waste all that energy doing a dynamic warmup? I'd rather use that energy sprinting or racing or or something like that. And that's one thing going into that that I, I've saw in the past is it almost seems like uh especially in collegiate softball like the women's game is is ahead of the men's game in the fact that pre-game waiting waiting on their turn to play they're not out there doing a bunch of crazy stuff they're they're very 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 relaxed 
ready to go where almost the men's sports, they'll amp themselves up and get themselves in a position where they're burning energy, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I, I think that's a big problem. Think about a high school or college football game, you know, 90 minute warm up before the game. You know, we, you go through your warm up and then your pre warm up, warm up, and then you go out on the field and think about all the fly routes that the wide receivers run warming up. You know, you just ran 12 or 16 40 yard dashes before you're going to go play a football game. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense because you only get so much. It's a finite amount. It's not like the game starts and you get that back again instantly. And it's not like a lot of the stuff replenishes in the time frames in between the, you know, during the national anthem. The national anthem plays, you don't get all that creatine back. It's going to take longer than the national anthem to get that energy back. But we like to go out there for the pageantry and the tradition and the the looks and, you know, that's part of the show. It's part of the show. Yeah, because you're working on, if you're wanting to stay in an anaerobic state between your creatine and your phosphorus uptake and rebuild, I've heard you talk about this, you're at 12 minutes. Yeah, supposedly somewhere in that, somewhere in that world. Yeah. Unless you, you've trained it well. And you, your body has learned how to replenish it over time with, you know, your, with your workouts, but that's not the workouts most, that most people do. Now, going back to your uh, flywheel machine a little bit there again, that's another piece of equipment that not every school is going to have. So relaying that back around and you can explain the difference. What? benefit do you get from that as opposed to a banded front squat or a banded zerker something with some opposing force and then coming up through it how does a flywheel machine help more than accommodating resistance uh the flywheel machine pulls you into the ground the rubber band you know you go down you know that might get depending on where you you've got the bands but you know, the first time you use that flywheel machine and i had one back in the day back when i got one from uh Hank Krasenhoff, uh, pick in the nineties. Uh, it feels alive. I mean, you can feel the energy coming through there with a weight. A weight's just a dead weight present. That's gravity working against you. Uh, this thing feels alive. So you've got to, you've got to reverse it. Uh, there's a little more energy coming down. Now, eventually you get to the point where you learn to handle that energy pretty quickly and you've got to continue to accommodate that and find other ways to get sucked down into the ground. Your increase in power absorption and reversal strength a little bit better or a lot better with that flywheel machine. Yes, but it does get to a point where, you know, you've learned to deal with that. I think Hank Krasenhoff had, had a great quote when, when he said, you know, a true eccentric exercise is you can't recover from it. That, that you, you land it and you're not going to rebound from that. Uh, but all the really hard eccentric stuff we do is you eventually, you can reverse it. Um, and that's something that's always stuck with me that, uh, the new, ten, the, the 1080 synchro or the way you use a 1080 sprint, there's a lot of ways you use a 1080 sprint, but you can make it that, you know, the eccentric on that is you don't come out of it. It catches and saves you so you don't have to land it, but there's no way you rebound out of it, which is truly what developing that overcoming eccentric strength is it depends who you talk to on what they want but listening to you you really like that wide start sprinting that you know as wide as they can be 
really getting that big push. If, if I'm listening to your podcast, right? How do you develop the hips for that real wide push? Well, it's not a real wide push. It's, it's just not narrow. It's, I want your toes underneath your hips. Um, but when you push out, you have to have width. Otherwise that foot comes medially and then you've created something that your body has to get over, which is why I think with that width, you don't have to get over yourself. Uh, and you can get to that, that ball of your big toe better to get a better push. And, and so your heel can, you know, you can create that, that explosion through your leg. Um, how you get the hips is we start with a rubber band around your waist and we start from a two point stance is, and can you rip the rubber band forward? Someone's holding it behind you and, and can you rip your hips forward? Um, and most people can't. And I think, especially in a start, the biggest issue is can you push off your back leg? Uh, that's where all your power comes from because that's what actually moves your mass forward before you push off your front leg. So just by momentum alone, if your hips are out in front of your mass or moving your mass forward, that front leg doesn't have to push nearly as hard to get you moving forward because all the mass is forward and becomes a better pusher instead of a stabilizer. Now, it's taken you, I'm sure, years to work through all this. Is it through tracking that you've been able to really narrow some of this stuff down and figure out what's really working for your athletes? That and film. Um and talking to my athletes, how does this feel? Does this work? How do you feel this works? Um, here's what I see on film. Um, and then I've been lucky to have good friends who are interested in the same thing. And we look at film together and, and people who don't coach track or aren't strength coaches, but, you know, chiropractors or, you know, people like that, physical therapists who see the body in a different way. And you get to some good conclusions that, Ultimately, it fail. Uh, there is no gold. There is no magic bullet. There is no golden workout. Um, unfortunately, I've been hunting for that for decades. Uh, sometimes you hit it right. Sometimes you don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, for an individual athlete, I track your 1080 times, whether your power output and all the different metrics that they have on there, including max velocity speed. Uh, but if you hit the same workout over and over again, eventually it's not going to work. Um, so really variation is the key, which is why filming is so important that you can see what's happening, um, and to try and get out in front of it. And if you look at enough film, you can sometimes make predictions about what may come next and just have a feel or, uh, for what may happen and what you may need to prescribe. Um, but again, every runner is different. I've got six really fast kids right now, and each one of them runs differently. Now, the magic is how can I get, do I give them all the same workout, even though all six recruit differently? And no, I've got to kind of look at the individual and, and figure out what's one thing we can work on for this next workout or two workouts. Now, going into that a little deeper, there's a lot of failure that comes along with that. How how did you get okay mentally with failing? Never. I take it personally. Um, you learn from your failures. Um, I don't know. 
there's days I walk, I, I get in my car and go home for practice. And I go, well, I fucked that up. That was horrible. You know, I thought I had this great idea and this really, that was a wasted practice. And that's on me. I mean, that's whether it was my communication or, uh, something I screwed up along the way because my kids will do what I ask them to do. They all have, we all have the same goal. And a lot of times your communication with your athlete is how well that goal has been outlined and the understanding of that goal. And, uh, I never have a problem getting my kids to work, but maybe it was my bad idea or my communication or I was thinking something stupid and I thought it'd be a good idea. Um, but it's a pathway, you know, I own up to the fact of the kids that, Hey guys, this was not a great workout for you. This isn't, let's change the exercise. You know, if I, if I'm watching and I always watch, it doesn't look good. I said, yeah, let's get rid of that. Let's just do two today. Let's just do two of them today. Something like that. Now, do you think staying at the high school level through your career, give you the leeway to work through all this, where if you would have taken it to a higher level, you may not have gotten the time at a, at a school to start figuring this stuff out. Yeah. I, I, I have been really lucky for the number of high schools that I've worked at, um, that I've always had complete freedom. Um, nobody has ever questioned what I've done. Uh, and that gave me rain to experiment. Uh, it gave me the ability to say, this isn't working. Like when I started, I was a hardcore lifting guy, you know, can we spot how many guys can get to spot 500 pounds? Cause you know, if you squat 500 pounds, you run a four, four forty. And eventually I had to come to the point where this isn't working. I don't have any four, four guys. I got guys that can squat that, but why isn't this working? And I think, uh, the ability to question what you're doing and not beat yourself up too much about it and move ahead. It has been really helpful. Um, you know, it's a journey. Um, I go back to stuff that I've gotten rid of or stuff I've never, I should go back to, but I just didn't like it, you know, something along those lines, but it's really about a journey and obtaining all that wisdom to apply to that athlete. So really another way of looking at it is over the years, I have accumulated a large toolbox with lots of colors and lots of tools and things like that. And the sign of a good artist is to know when to use that one tool that's called for that one specific occasion. It's kind of like Miles Davis said uh, when playing, when, when he's doing all his jazz solos, it's sometimes it's what you don't play. That's really important. Now, does that give you the ability to work up to the upper ends with the professional athletes and then bring it back down for middle schoolers? It's just knowing what tool to use when. Uh, middle schoolers are easy uh, just because if you can get them to move their limbs fast, be, things are going to go better. Uh, that's one thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, one thing that I think you know people argue about, but really fast people have limbs that move really fast and it's noticeable and high school, some high school kids just can't move their limbs fast. And there's people that say you can't change that, but I've, I've seen people change that. Um, so just in for a middle school kid, getting them to raise that neural ceiling. Like when I have middle school parents that come, they say, what would you do if you outline a program? And I'd say, 
Well, I'd play as many sports as possible. I would take a six-week ballet class. I would take a six-week Irish dancing class. Then I would take a six-week ballroom dancing class just so you learn where your body is in all those different positions. And then maybe throw in some other stuff along the way. Like uh, in Chicago, we have this place called Windy City Ninjas, which is just a giant jungle gym for middle school kids to go run through. I'd be there once a week. Learn what your body can do. Learn not to be scared doing these different things. Learn how to fall. Learn how to do all these different things. Whereas the professional athlete, um, I've been, uh, I push it with professional athletes because what's the one thing they don't do anymore is they don't sprint at full speed um, because everyone's afraid of hamstring pulls and all this stuff. And, you know, knock on wood, I've been fairly lucky with that. Uh, but I get them to run again. I teach them how to sprint again. Um, and I use the 1080 and we do a lot of overspeed pulling because it takes a lot of pressure off those hamstrings uh, to get them up to speed. And you don't think about that, but them teams invest all the money in them. And then all of a sudden they start to kind of handle them with a little more care than what maybe they need. Yeah. Well, again, you're looking at a million dollar, millions of dollars of investment and you can't be the guy that sent them out to do that because that's how you're going to lose your job. Um, but you know, I run my guys and I run them on the street. We run on the street and people are like, I can't believe you have these guys running on the street, but people grow up, they play basketball and blacktop for days and days and days and days and days and years. Um, in my opinion, you know, if I'm doing overspeed stuff, I don't want a slower surface. You know, then I'm getting rid of the, the idea that this overspeed is creating that co-contraction faster. You know, I, I want as hard of a surface as possible. So your body reacts quicker, which is ultimately what we need to do when we sprint and prevent injuries. Now, do you find the professional athletes get as excited over an increase in speed as, as a younger athlete, as a high school athlete? Yeah, they're obsessed with it. But remember, after your combine, that's the last time someone times you. And they know that. And they want to see if they're still fast or can they get faster. Because your big money comes from, you know, how many 100-yard games you get. You're not going to have a 100-yard game if you only get 15 touches if you don't break a couple long ones. So working with big teams, you know, a lot of schools have a lot of a lot of kids under their under a coach's care. To be as efficient as possible, what tools or technology would you suggest to, to help a coach kind of get everything dialed in? Really good timer. That's easy to use and fast to use. Because um, to me, top end speed, especially in the high school level, is going to be what differentiates you with other teams. I mean, you can't grow four, six foot five linemen at 280 pounds, right? You're going to get what you get. But you can make people faster. And if you can outrun people, you know, you can, and you have a clever coach, you can find ways to win. Um, so a good timer that, that tracks people. Um, and I don't know anything after that. Uh, I think everyone's got, depending on their space or their budget, there's plenty of stuff out there that you can do. Um, a lot of my work requires, no equipment whatsoever. Uh, you need a floor and a wall. And I think everyone's got those. 
just to set a good foundational strength for, for good sprinting. Now, I know going back to the Husker Power days, Boyd Epley was kind of a big believer that you're only born with so much fast twitch muscle. So if you have a slow muscle, a slow twitch muscle kid, you can't do anything to help him. Other research says that's not true. Do you believe through sprinting the way you do that you are able to convert the slow twitch muscle to a faster twitch muscle? I don't know because I don't have the technology to measure that, but I know you can make a kid faster. Um, and if you can be more efficient with what you have, you may not need that much to run the speeds that you need to, to be a really good high school athlete. Again, not everyone, you can't make everyone a world-class 100 meters dash sprinter. I know that. I've, I've been trying for years and I've failed for years. Uh, fast as I've had a couple 10, four guys and that's, that's the best that I've seen. Um, so I think you can make them faster, you know, fast enough to be, a, like I said, a good high school player. Um, and uh, very controversially, I will say that in the weight room isn't always the best way to do that. Um, having a good strength base is important, but having super high maxes and things like that, I don't think that has much carryover. Like I've got two kids that have 40 inch vertical jumps, but they aren't my best friends. Going into what you said there just a little bit, I, I got a chance to talk to Matt Winning the other day, who was a West Side guy who holds the raw world record squad at 861. I know you work with JL Holdsworth. So incredibly strong guys. But talking to Matt, he said maybe that the weight room for athletes is more about getting the body ready for the forces that they're going to encompass in sprinting as opposed to getting them stronger to be faster. I don't know what your opinion is on that. I don't think in the weight room you can match three times the body weight in the eight-tenths of a second or an eight-one-hundredths of a second. Um, I don't think there's anything in the weight room that can that can handle that. Um, so I think you're getting your body closer to being ready, but I think it happens too fast. I think the best way to run faster is to sprint. You know, short sprints with lots of rest, lots of, you know, one, one thing we do know about fast twitch muscle fibers is it does take at least 72 hours if you want to make that conversion of complete rest. There's some cool research that came out a while ago where they, they were looking into that. I think this is back in the eighties or nineties. Um, the best way to develop fast twitch, fast twitch muscle fibers is to do nothing. You do your workout, you literally do nothing for four days. They casted someone to measure that. They cast the limbs to see. That that would be a pretty unique study that, yeah, some, that somebody think, did. I think they did that in Russia where they got away with that. That wouldn't surprise me any because they're always looking for the edge, whether that, yeah. was, whether that be through the state or however they can get it. Yeah, I think this is back the Soviet Union days when they had the, the machine going. Um. I'm not saying weightlifting is bad. There's great things that you can do. Um, but I think for a high school athlete, we get so obsessed with how much can you do that we sacrifice posture for that weight and we develop bad recruitment patterns that ultimately lead to not efficient sprinting patterns. Like you think about, you know, a basic for me when lifting weights is your spine always has to be parallel to your shins. 
That way, when you go to drive, you can't, you're not going to engage as much erector when you stand up with the weight. Um, but what do we see people do? The minute they put 315 on their back, their entire cervical and thoracic spine is completely crumbled. And that's not what happens when you sprint. Um, sprinting is about aligning your spine under no, you know, intrinsically rather than in extrinsically. You know, so what you can do internally and line things up compared to reacting to a weight on your back. And I think that's the biggest difference, one of the many differences between what happens when you sprint and what you do in the weight room. You're not going to give any power out if your spine isn't aligned properly, intrinsically. Especially your young, weaker lifters, it's even worse. So oh, it's if, brutal. Yeah, if you're not actively developing that, probably through a lighter weight, then you're never going to get it. It's, it's just yeah. going to keep compounding. And, and what we do is we look at the magazines and we see the power lifters with their Louis Simmons wide stance and, you know, and like, and rightly so, a thousand pounds should crumple you, right? And they're fighting that crumpling to stand up with the weight. And we try to emulate that, uh, which is not a very athletic position. What are some things you're working on now that, uh, you're hoping to see some improvement on? All right. Now for track, I'm just trying to stay healthy to the state track meet. Um, that's my number one goal and try to get some weather where we can do some max velocity work. Um, I, you know, my thought right now is still hardcore the foot. Um, your foot is really a rudder and wherever you're pushing with that foot, uh, the more forward you go the less you have to do with the rest of your body. And I'm really doing a lot of stuff with your pelvis and your rib cage. That seems to be, you know, the more track meets I stand out at and watch 23 heats, the 200 meter dash or the hundred meter dash. And I film them all so I can go back and look at them all. People come apart in their torso long before they come apart in anything else. And once that torso comes apart or, or your, your, your hips to your, your rib cage comes apart, your legs go all over the place. And that's really what I've been focusing on and how, how to train that and strengthen that and use endurance work to, to strengthen that. Because even in a 40 yard dash, you see people come apart. The killer is baseball. Baseball really falls apart. We're going to run a 60. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the length of the entire field? Yeah, but don't worry about it. Run the 60. You want to see some bad running form? Watch people run a 60 at a baseball combine. They got their heads coming back, their ribs popping, hat falls off, all the drama at the end. And we want them to run a 6.5 or a 6.7 or whatever, just break seven. And uh, there's no way they're going to do that because the wheels have come off. The wheels have come off. I think you painted a pretty accurate picture of what happens just the way you explained that. Yeah. It all just gets disjointed, and then at a certain point, it's just about finishing and not maintaining speed. Yeah. And so what What does the coach say to him? Oh, you got to go get stronger. Oh, wait a minute. I already squat 405. Yeah, but maybe 450 will do it for you, and then you won't fall apart at the end of that race. Or you're not clean, and you got to go clean. Well, I already cleaned 225 five times. Uh, 275 might be that magic number. That's the magic bullet. And we have such great kids, they'll go do it. Yeah, without even thinking about it. This is what coach said is going to work. You know, that's one thing about kids. And tell you, if you're not honest with them or you really let them down, they're going to trust you because of the position you're in. Yep. Because you got a logo on your shirt. 
Now, I'm from south of Kansas City going back to the baseball. So a few years ago when the Royals were playing really good ball, it's amazing how much that team speed stood out across the league with guys like Gerard Dyson and stuff like that. I mean, and really, were they that much faster or were their mechanics that much better? I don't know. I'd have to see. Um, they go back and forth with speed in baseball. I think, and I didn't watch this because I'm not a baseball fan. Um, but when Japan beat the United States in this tournament that was a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, what was that? The World League or the World and J- Japan beat us and people couldn't figure out why. Well, it's because they're built like humans and they could move. Um, we've made powerlifting into baseball, which I don't know if it needs to be. Unless you're hitting home runs and selling tickets, you know, that that's one way of thinking of it. Um, but I think we got out-athleted. Well, and going into that, I mean, even Louis Simmons said, the stronger you get, the slower you get if you're not working on speed throughout your workouts. Yeah. I mean, he had to go to the Russians to figure that out, but there, there's a lot to that. I mean, it, it comes down to physics. I mean, that's a lot of mass you have to move. Um, and working on the 1080, you know, one of the magic numbers is watts per kilogram that you put out per stride. And that's one of the hardest numbers to improve, but it's the easiest number to destroy just by gaining weight. You have to get exponentially stronger with that weight gain. And, and, and that's just not running. I'm going to imagine that that's other movements as well. To move a limb requires a lot of energy. Um, and you get that limb bigger. That's harder to control. I mean, it, it's exponentially more difficult on your torso to control that limb as you get bigger. And that's why I think when really good sprinters, you see, they have no calves. High and tight, little tiny ankles. You don't have to, you don't need a lot of muscle. You don't need as much strength to control that limb going through its angular momentum. It's just more efficient. But bodybuilding, like those giant calves and stuff like that, well, that's a lot of energy to control that at the end of a lever. It requires a ton of energy. Well, you kind of led in to what my next question would be is, what attributes do you see in a natural athlete that you've learned to look for so you can help uh, an athlete that might be struggling a little bit? I mean, we all know a natural athlete that's, you know, can get along pretty good without a whole lot of coaching. What do they have that the normal guy don't have? Big butt. Uh, amount of musculature in their back and mid back like thoracic, always really meaty. And I think that's one thing a lot of people miss. Um, even my little guys, like I got a guy that, you know, I, I think tomorrow night or Friday night, he should run 48 seconds in a quarter. He weighs 127. But you lay him down on the table and you do RPR on him, you know, he's got a lot of mass in that mid-back and a lot of mass in his glute. Even though he's a little guy, 127, a buck and a quarter, uh, the, that mass is there. Um, high and tight calves, again, it's going to be an angular velocity thing, how well you can control that. Rarely do I see people with a mega calf, like a bodybuilder calf that can run really well. But I've seen some people run really well where they have a tremendous amount of mass in that anterior shank. Um, 
couple of my fastest people had a lot of mass in that front half of the calf out in front. And that was all the dorsiflexors, you know, tib anterior, you know, the two heads of that, that controlled all that. And you know, I'm working on some research with someone right now and we're looking at co-contractions, what actually co-contracts in faster athletes. I don't know if I can say this. Um, tib anterior, major player, major player. Um, and, I think that's all I can say at this point. I probably shouldn't have said that. Okay, but that does open up a pretty clear picture. I mean, as a bodybuilder or a weightlifter, you want all of your mass in the calf in the back. I mean, they talk about when Arnold won the Olympia, how much time he spent developing his calves. Where in a sprinter, what's undesirable in a bodybuilder or a powerlifter is more desirable. Yeah, high and tight. Um and I think when we see pictures of elite sprinters where it's a little, uh, it's not as accurate because we forget that they're, I don't, and I, you can't see this on camera, right? Their, their ankles are tiny. So just a little bit of mass on that calf is going to look huge. You know, the wrists are tiny. They had, they're small boned people and there's less mass to carry through that, that limb. Um, so that means the torso doesn't have to position as much to control these things flying all over the place. Uh, that brings up an interesting topic. That's what they look for in gymnasts. I, I got to interview a gymnast a while back and they started breaking down in the research. I did somebody like Simone Biles, their bone density was so much less than the average person that they were able to make those transitions in flight. It's, uh, it's physics. It's physics. Um, yeah, my best athletes have had those attributes where it's, it, they are smaller boned people. I've had some good ones. I've, I've had some really good athletes. And I would say that would be the one thing that stands out is bone density, you know, that their limbs aren't huge. They may look great in a t-shirt and walking around. Well, they got 4% body fat. And, uh, you know, their posture holds them tall and makes their chest look broader. But you, you put them up next to like the, I'm a weightlifter dude in high school. It's like, well, this is apples and oranges. I mean, you guys may weigh the same, but this dude's built completely different, you know. Uh, but I always mention this because it, it always sticks out. Uh, Bo Jackson lives in the same town I live in and he's, he's, you see him. And all of his mass is in the middle of his body. You know, he's got small wrists. Um, but when he runs, that huge mass is moving forward from the middle of the body rather than having all this weight on the outside spinning all over the place. And you look at him, you know, that, that dude's got a big butt and that dude's thick through the middle. I mean, he had a mass that moved from the center where what we develop in the weight room is people that have mass in their arms, like, you know, Friday, you know, Friday night gun show workouts and do look at my quads and, and all this stuff. It's, I don't know how useful that is because we don't look at angular momentums and velocities and limbs when we sprint and how difficult it is to control exponentially control some added mass in that. And that's why you wear those, uh, exogen calf sleeves because you're adding 300 grams, but that's incredibly difficult to control 
just by adding 300 grams. But, but you think about it with, well, I'm going to add four pounds on my thigh because it looks great. What has it done from a physics standpoint to you running? It's going to be incredibly difficult to control, which is why when you see these bodybuilders sprint, they can never lift their legs up. And sometimes they fall flat on their face. They can't control the angular velocity of that larger limb. Sorry, I went on a tangent there. Uh, no, I, I enjoyed it because, like I said earlier, being from Kansas City, I got to spend all of my childhood watching Bo Jackson just do some of the most incredible things you could ever imagine. Well, I'm sure you know. But, uh, yeah, what what a cool time to grow up and have Bo Jackson be in Kansas City. You know, that documentary on 30 for 30, I think it was 30 for 30, mm-hmm. where they said when he was in high school, he could stand waist deep in water and do a backflip. I mean, the power that's required to do that, just to jump in water that's waist deep is incredible, which is a great training tool, by the way. But to do a flip, to get out enough and whip your body through the water and get your body mass around in time to land on your feet, that's that's like a superhero thing. Like Thor can do that, or uh, maybe that's it. I don't know, but that's incredible incredible i don't know what's legend and what's true but uh you listen to a lot of people talk about some just unbelievable stuff he was able to do amazing time amazing to be able to see him do that or to see him play now i know you auto regulate a lot of stuff and i would imagine it gets pretty easy to get lost in all the auto regulation if you're not keeping track and really keeping the numbers in check where you can look at them quickly and make decisions on when somebody's dropping off. If you could only auto-regulate a few things, what would be your priorities? Speed, time. Um, on 1080, I can measure your velocity and I'll know right away. And plus they have that graph that lays out on your computer. You just look at the graph and you see one color below the other color. It's time to stop. That's all you have to do. Um, so I tie everything to speed because speed is the most important thing in my world. Um, so whatever cycles of exercises I have you go through, as soon as I see your speed drop, I just stop. Less is better than more. Um, we can always come back and get it another day. I'd rather pull up early than late. But I, like I said, on the 1080, you just look at the graph and you know right away. Uh, it's instant. I don't even have to look at the numbers. You just look at the graph and you can tell. Yeah. And then you're shutting them down. Yeah. Um, so been doing the auto regulating for a long time. The numbers usually range from three to five in reps. I may have one outlier that may get six one day, but then I know coming back the next workout, they're going to be shit. So why do six? Um, so generally three to five is, is what I have found. And I still look and I still measure and I challenge kids like who can make it the longest today or, you know, we're going to cut back a little bit, see if we can get more reps. And I'm going to increase the, the, the threshold because we got a three day weekend coming up or there's a snowstorm coming. I know this is going to close school, you know, that type of thing. So I may change what that drop off cut is. Um, but I'm speed and on a 1080, which usually I hook you up to. Uh, I can tell right away. With auto regulation, you know where guys are at all the time. 
you're able to control the workout and you want to stop this side of, of healthy. You don't, you don't want to take it too far. And some applications for maybe let's call it an old style program before guys really got into auto regulating. They believe sprinters should be better conditioned than what they are. I don't know that I agree with that, but how much does a VO2 max play into a 100-meter sprinter? For me in high school, not at all. I don't even know. <laughs> we don't do any. Uh, we only, well, this year we've only breathed hard a couple times. Um, again, if we're more efficient, I don't need as much energy. Um, you know, we've run really good 200s. Uh, we haven't had a problem. Um, so I don't, for my kids in my program, uh, I don't look at it at all. Um, does that mean my kids can't go out and run a mile? Probably, but I don't care. I, my 400 meter guys, they got to run a 400. Everyone else has got to run a hundred and 200. You usually get about 45 minutes rest in between each one, which I know how to deal with in between those times. And, uh, I can handle that. And that sounds like probably the right way to attack it. I mean, you're wanting to keep them in that anaerobic state as long as possible with the correct amount of rest and keep them keep them fast at no point yeah. i guess would you ever want to deaccelerate them uh what do you mean by that by deaccelerating running into a time or a distance that would actually teach them to slow down uh so so if you had a 100 meter kid you wouldn't want him out there running i mean with all the work on the 1080 i don't know i'm just i'm kind of feeling for ideas here and you wouldn't want him running into a place where his top speed dropped below a certain percent to actually teach him to slow down. No, 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 no. I don't do that. I don't have football players. Um, we do that in the summertime. So deceleration happens after you run by the tape and I don't care how you do it. Just don't fall. Um, so no, I, I'm not. I don't train my kids enough and I don't that I need to do sub maximal work. Um, and this year we did a lot of towing on the 1080, which is different than doing max V work. Um, so I would call that sub maximal to some extent because I do slow you down a little bit, quite a bit in some cases. Uh, but I'm, I don't do tempo work. I don't do what do they call that? Uh, there's two different types of tempos. I forgot what they are. I don't do them because um, I don't think I need to. Uh, my kids recover on their own. They're 16, 17 years old. They got plenty of testosterone pumping through their system. Uh, our biggest problem is getting them to eat, uh, especially at meets. Um, so good diets, sleep, no phones on past 10 o'clock. See how many hours of sleep you can get before midnight. You know, that's the kind of stuff we're focusing on for recovery. Uh, I'd rather have them sleep than do some recovery work. I think sleeping is better recovery work than doing some 70% 200-meter runs to get the blood pumping. Yeah, I got to talk to a strength and conditioning coach at a college just uh, 
I actually, I believe it was yesterday and they were talking about tempo runs and rebuilding the CNS. And I had an opportunity to talk to him and I'm like, does the tempo runs really help recover the CNS? Wouldn't rest help the CNS more than tempo runs? And his answer, surprisingly enough, was yes. But the head strength and conditioning coach was a traditionalist and he believed in tempo runs. So that's what they did. Now, my focus is on sleep, red meat, berries, um, eat something that has color, eat something that doesn't come in a package, uh, limit your blue lights. You know, that, that's better rest for me. Um, days off. Um, we'll have days like after a hard workout, your rule, your goal is to go home and lay down in bed and play a video game and do your homework. Try not to get out of your bed, see how long you can lay down for and then go to sleep. Yeah, that's kind of the anti-cultural way to think about it, but you're getting results. It, it, it's got to be restoring the CNS and you're winning. Sleeping is the best way to rest. And even now we're finding out, you know, REM sleep and deep sleep. And all the impact that has on recovery and even drill work and mastery of things. Uh, I think that's the best way to go about it to make sure our kids are getting good sleep. How much sleep can you get before midnight? You know, don't stay up past midnight. You know, all those different things I think are for me, they're better. Again, I don't have a head strength coach. My head track coach lets me do whatever I want to do. Um, and I've been doing it for a long time and have had pretty good sec- success for a, a long time. Again, I'm knocking on wood. I've had bad years too. So I hope this year isn't one of them. <laughs> now, and everything you've learned over the years and kind of to build on what we were just talking about, do you, do you feel that people get over-conditioned athletes confused with under-conditioned athletes and almost compound a problem? Yes, I, I I think especially in club sports or the start of every season, show me a coach that doesn't have the kids show up on the first day and go, we're out of shape. We got to get in better condition. And then the kids say, well, coach, you know, we just finished our entire lacrosse travel season where we were playing four lacrosse games in a 36-hour period of time and then traveled and then practiced twice a day, six days a week. I don't know if we need to get in better shape. I don't know how much better shape I can get in. Maybe I'm exhausted and I don't need to run any more gassers and don't need to run for 20 minutes and all this other stuff. Um, but again, I think conditioning is a way to establish a hierarchy of who's in charge. I think it's a good way to cover the fact that you don't know really what to do. You've got to practice for two hours and an easy way to kill 30 minutes is to run them. And because every parent will come back and say, well, we lost because we're not in good shape. How about you're exhausted from playing three years of travel sports and you didn't sleep all week and you eat shit and all of a sudden you're not in shape? Let's look at the bigger picture here objectively and ask good questions about what's actually going on here. And I think especially in girls sports, because for some reason girls seem averse to eating red meat. We're creating a, a whole problem of, you know, iron deficiencies, which lead to stress fractures. You know, you're getting high school kids that have stress fractures that 85-year-old adults get, geriatric adults get from falling. How does that happen? What is going on where we're doing this to our kids? Good question, right? I don't know the answer, but I, I can guess from what I see 
but nobody agrees with me because you're not putting in the work. There's no grit, all this other stuff. As Bo Jackson said, there's no blood on the saddle. <laughs> yeah. I think he said that in that 30 for 30 you were talking about when he was at Auburn. Yeah. Now, I know I've kept you quite a while, and, and it's it's been wonderful to talk to you. So I'll kind of wrap up with this question here. So coming from the high school rooms, working with high school athletes, you've you've managed to work your way to top athletes in the world. At some point, you had to have found yourself into rooms that you probably weren't quite ready to be in, uh, education or confidence or whatever that may be. How are you able to work from those rooms you didn't feel confident in to be teaching in those rooms, if that makes sense? Uh, good question. What do they call that where you, you don't think you should be there? There's some psychological term for that. Um, imposter syndrome, isn't it? Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Oh, I feel that all the time. Um, I think to stay humble and understand what, if they want to hear what you have to say, that's what you're there to do and be objective. You know, you have to pinch yourself and get past the logos that are hanging everywhere and look at the problem and, and be honest and be forthcoming and be confident because that's what they want. They don't want a fan to show up. Um, they want, they want you there for your information because they heard something that, I wrote or said somewhere along the way that impressed him enough that, you know, they want to hear what I have to say. And, you know, you kind of have to get over yourself and, and just be objective and look at the problem and, and give your assessment. I think the first time I did that was with an NFL team. You know, the first one, the first time that I got called down to a stadium. And I'm watching stuff. I'm watching stuff. And then they said, well, tell us what you think. Tell us everything wrong with our systems. Like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just a high school coach who I can't get all my kids at practice at one time or, you know, you know, I can't get them on the bus. You know, you know, all the problems that we have as high school coaches and they want to and you kind of had to just kind of swallow it and go, well, here's what I saw. Um, and this is what I think. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's really good. And then you start to say, well, that's what you wanted. And. You know, I think honesty is a good way out of a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that's kind of, that was kind of it. And then you start to realize that you're there for a reason and they're paying you well. And uh, you tell them what you think and, uh, don't let the logo and all the trappings distract you from what you're doing. And I think that's a good way to handle everything is be objective. Look at the whole situation and don't get distracted by all the things that a lot of people like to get distracted by. Like when I have NFL guys out on the street, you know, I, I don't think that he's going to play. They're going to be on TV on Sundays and things like that, that they are there for help. And really your job is, I think, as a human being and, you know, in a bigger picture is can you help people that ask for help and can you help a stranger? And if we can do those two things and we're humble, I think you can lead a pretty good life. At the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and you've maybe made the place, uh, the world a little better place and you helped be a bridge to some athletes' dreams or some people's dreams. And that's really what we're here to do. Uh, and I 
you know, I remind myself that all the time that some days I get tired and some days, you know, I don't feel like doing it, but you know, for kids that show up to train here, this is the highlight of their week. And I've got to make sure I give them my best or a track practice. They may be having a bad day, but you know, we only have so many times together. It's, it's really my job to be, to be what they want me to be, which is a coach and lead them and, and help them. Um, and so people always ask, don't you ever get tired? And you do a lot of stuff. It's yeah. But if, if your target and your goal is to help people, um, then you never get tired because you know, at the end of the day, and like I said earlier, most of the time you never hear back from people, but you know, deep down, you know, from their voice or their, their responses that you've helped them and you've helped a stranger, you did your job today. That's a pretty incredible answer. Uh, I think of all the questions I asked and the answers you gave, that was a really good one to wrap up on because that was pretty unbelievable. Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, coach, I know you're busy. I appreciate you making some time coming on, being forthcoming with all of your answers. Uh, good luck. Knock on wood. Thank you. Everything we got goes well. five weeks left. Um, if we get some weather. And a little luck, maybe we can do something good. All right, Coach. Well, good luck on the remainder of your season, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me.